Let the good news come now, our God, not only in word, but in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our scripture passage uh, this morning picks up in the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus is getting ready to enter into Jerusalem. Uh, he has just had a meal with Zacchaeus, the tax collector, and then told a very difficult parable about the king with the pounds and the stewards, not all of whom uh, the king thought were worthy of uh, the gift he had given them. And that parable concludes with, to all those who have, more will be given, but from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. And this is where our scripture begins. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he had come near Bethphage of Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go ahead into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as it had been told them. As they were untying the colt, the owner asked of them, why are you untying the colt? The disciples said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus. And after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As Jesus rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As Jesus was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen. They yelled, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, order your disciples to stop. Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. Thanks be to God for this gracious word. So the scene is set. The city is bulging with people, crowds who have come for the festivities, the biggest celebration of the year, religious authorities and government officials, city folk who live there and town folk who live in all the regions around and rural folk who live in the middle of nowhere. Merchants and shepherds, farmers and fishers, Sovereigns, servants, soldiers, slaves, they're all there. It will soon be the Passover, and Jerusalem is teeming with people and activity. Now, Jesus is accustomed to crowded attention by now. Just a bit ago, when he entered Jer uh, Jericho, you'll remember, on his way to Jerusalem, the crowds were so great that the diminutive tax collector, Zacchaeus, had to climb that infamous sycamore tree. For the Lord 
he wanted to see. Yes, exactly. Right, right. Big crowds. Crowds had been following Jesus, but this was different. We don't think of Jesus as one who was concerned with optics. That seems, well, maybe not a contemporary or modern day thing. Kings have always been concerned with optics. But Jesus wasn't that kind of king. But he did speak in parables, and a triumphant entry on a baby donkey that had never been ridden was sort of an optic parable. One hailed as king should enter on a mighty steed, not a baby ass. An optic parable. This was simply not your typical parade. Now, parades have changed a lot in my lifetime. My earliest memories are of small-town Midwest parades. They are not unlike the opening parade scene in the Tom Cruise movie, Born on the Fourth of July. They were full-on celebrations of the good old USA and small-town civic life. World War II was as close in the rearview mirror in those days of my youth as 9-11 is now. We celebrated America. I don't remember veterans and uh, soldiers marching in the parade, but I remember the bands and the baton twirlers, some pretty lame floats, and we all waved American flags. When my daughters were young, we spent a lot of time going up to Ithaca, New York, where we had a little cottage. And one year we took the girls to the local July 4th parade, thinking this would be a bit of a throwback. It likely in this small town in upstate New York, 4th of July parade would look something like the parades of our youth. And we thought they'd never see anything like this in central New Jersey, so we'd go to the parade. We found a parking place on the parade route, which is a little unusual, but we thought this is great. They're young, if they get tired or if it begins to rain, we have a place to shelter them. And so we parked the car, we got out and we waited for the parade to start. Parades had changed. There were a couple of so-called bands here and there, not the 100 strong precision marching musicians of my high school years, an award-winning band in my high school years, but a few horns meandering down the street trying to keep time with their music even if they couldn't keep time with their feet. The baton twirlers were the very same ones from my youth. <laughs> I mean the very same girls, now turned middle-aged women, 40 years later, in the same costumes they had worn 40 years ago, it was not a good idea. <laughs> and instead of floats and veterans and Girl Scout troops and Boy Scout troops and all the, the local elementary school groups, there were fire engines and ambulances, all manner of police vehicles and other kinds of emergency support vehicles. And they were from all over upstate New York and they were all blasting their horns and they had their sirens screaming and they were all belching fumes. Well, I don't know what we were more worried about, 
our children's future ability ever to hear again, or whether they would have a future at all after breathing all of these fumes. And we could not escape to the car because the car was on the parade route, and so you were either outside with the blast or you're inside locked with the fumes, and we could not escape. We literally couldn't get out of this parade. All the while, the traditional post-World War II Americana celebrating parade, it was changing. It was changing over those years, but there were other things going on as well, even during those years. Marches that might have looked to some like parades taking place in cities I had never even heard of as a child. On February 18, 1965, an African-American civil rights activist and church deacon, Jimmy Lee Jackson. Mr. Jimmy Lee Jackson was beaten and shot while marching in a peaceful voters' rights demonstration in his hometown of Marion, Alabama. Looked all the world like a parade. He died eight days later. The irony is glaring. Mr. Jimmy Lee Jackson bore the name of two Confederate Army generals, Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. And he was fighting for his rights. Three marches from Selma to uh, Montgomery, Alabama, followed shortly thereafter, uh, right after Mr. Jimmy Lee Jackson's death. The first of these took place Hardly two weeks later, on March 7, 1965, two weeks after Mr. Jimmy Lee Jackson died, that first Selma to Montgomery march is known as Bloody Sunday because the marchers were beaten, they were attacked with police dogs, they were hosed down with full-bore fire hoses, and they were gassed with tear gas. Mrs. Amelia Boynton, a march organizer, was beaten unconscious on the Selma Bridge. And that is probably the most iconic picture of that parade, that march, that demonstration. Mrs. Amelia Boynton lying unconscious and bleeding at the edge of the Selma Bridge. One police officer, after beating her with his billy club, pumped tear gas into her mouth and then left her for dead. The iconic picture of Mrs. Amelia Boynton lying unconscious on the Selma Bridge is the famous reminder of that march, of that parade. She died in August of 2015. At 104 years old, after having seen the Civil Rights Act signed into legislation, and attending the inauguration of Barack Obama. Things really changed. Those who opposed the civil rights marchers would probably have marched proudly in that parade celebrating America. On the one side of the street, it would be the American flag and stars and stripes forever, and on the other side of the street would be people holding signs that said things like, we shall overcome and I have a dream, and I am a man. 
I imagine some of the same people who celebrated America in the parades of my youth were, figuratively speaking, telling Martin Luther King Jr. to rebuke his followers. Tell them to shush, quiet down. Today, it is the march that has more attention than the parade. The march is replete with crowds and celebrities, government officials, religious officials, other kinds of authorities. We sometimes call these marches protests. And optics are still very important. It seems, though, that sometimes it has taken a turn for the surreal because now we have clerical collars and uterus hats side by side. <laughs> Not something that would have happened in my youth. Descendants of slaves and descendants of slave owners on opposite sides of the street. Neo-Nazis have become emboldened to crawl out of the snake pit of history where they belong, to challenge the more noble impulses of our national identity. Noble impulses that we would think should go unquestioned, such as equality and equal opportunity and fairness. Just a level playing field and a concern for our neighbor. And of course, missing from the parade or the march scene is the undocumented mother who is afraid to leave her house while her American citizen children are at school for fear she will never see them again. And there is noise. <laughs> There's always noise, whether it is cheering for the red, white, and blue, or the blasting of horns and screaming sirens, or angry shouts of protest, or uplifting chants of support for human rights and dignity. There is noise. <coughs> and this is where we join the fray of the Jesus Parade. There is a hint of national pride in the Jesus Parade. We are a Jewish people and we want to maintain our identity and that's a dangerous thing to do. There's a Jewish teacher and rabbi who the people wanted for king. There was a parade-like procession. There was an uplifting chant telling the goodness of God and there was protest. When we tell the story to children, we seem to be so impressed that the people threw their cloaks on the ground as he processed along that maybe they grabbed some branches and threw them on the ground. That was so, so every day. That was nothing. There was no, that's what you did for a king. That's what you did for a celebrity. You threw your cloaks down. That was a standard response in those days to the entry of a king. The incongruous optic is that Jesus was not on a king's ride, but on a young colt. A baby ass, a colt so young, it can only be described as fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy from Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious as he, humble, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal, of a donkey, it's a baby ass. Jesus was, Jesus was riding on a baby ass, the most humble animal of burden. And about this so-called king, the people were shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. 
Imagine the shouting that would go on when a war hero came by in a parade, or a newly elected and popular government official came by, or when a sports team that just won a championship paraded down Main Street. Forgive me. <coughs> we love you. <laughs> Thank you for your service. Super Bowl champs, Super Bowl champs, right? But you see, that's a little too uncomplicated for our purposes. How about the shouting and chanting when marching for human rights? Women's rights are human rights. Black lives matter. I can't breathe. While on the other side of the street, all lives matter. Police lives matter. They're not necessarily in complete opposition to each other, and we'd like to meet in the middle sometimes. But there's chant and counter-chant or when marching in support of immigration reform. Jesus was a refugee. Education, not deportation. While on the other side of the street, just go home. Or when marching for gun law reform. No more silence, end gun violence. Protect children, not guns while on the other side of the street, guns don't kill people, people kill people. The crowds, the noise, the cacophony of conviction, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and peace in the highest heaven, glory to God in the highest. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, while on the other side of the street, Jesus, tell your disciples to just be quiet. Jesus, do not draw more attention to yourself. Jesus, do not draw more attention to the fact that we are Jews. Don't point it out to them. Jesus, do not draw more attention to the disruption that your work has already caused in the countryside as you teach, and as you eat with, with, with sinners and do other scandalous things like heal on the Sabbath. Jesus, rebuke your disciples. It is easy to imagine this rebuke. I've always feared I would be one rebuking. It is easy to imagine the conventional authorities trying to just, you know, let's just quiet things down, not draw attention, mollify and modify. This is what's hard to imagine. What is hard to imagine is that if Jesus' followers were quiet, the stones on the road would begin to shout. Silence Jesus' followers and the stones would shout out. Now, we're used to thinking of stones as deaf and mute. Stone deaf, we might say. But if we have learned anything today, it is that even stone deaf has a voice, right? And that voice has a vocation to preach the word of God. In fact, <laughs> people can be intimidated into silence, stones cannot. Biblically speaking, stone deaf is an oxymoron. The Pharisees who told Jesus to rebuke his followers would have recognized this reference from the prophet Habakkuk. It's not just off the top of his creative head. This is actually a reference to the prophet Habakkuk. Habakkuk 
talked about stones crying out. The Pharisees, who would silence Jesus' disciples, they knew this reference, that if the stones were to cry out, it would not simply be the creation shouting in jubilant joy that the Messiah was here. We think shouting stone means heavens are telling the glory of God and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. But for Jesus and for the Pharisees who heard him, shouting stones would be an indictment against silencing his followers. Shouting stones would be an indictment against the gain that comes at the cost of God's truth when those would silence the one who came into the world to redeem the world. Shouting stones will cry out if the disciples are silent because those who would elevate themselves at the expense of another will be brought down. The prophet Habakkuk warned against ill-gotten gains. Habakkuk warned the one who took what was not one's own and who plundered the assets of a conquered people. Habakkuk warned the one whose house benefited from what was evil, that the very stones with which the house was built would cry out and the beam from the woodwork would respond. Suffer my followers to silence and the ill gains bought by their silence will be told by the stones themselves. You cannot build your house on the suffering or the silencing or the unjust treatment of another. Those of us from a certain generation will remember the words from the rock opera, Jesus Christ Superstar, that captured this sentiment. I'm already seeing some smiles out there. You're recognizing this. And actually, I, I think, as with some other things in the rock opera, Jesus Christ Superstar, which you might have seen, it was performed live on, on uh, TV, broadcast on TV Easter evening this year. Um, it, got, it gets a few things wrong, theologically. Uh, and in this case, I, you know, maybe only captures uh, part of the sentiment. Why waste your breath moaning? I'm not going to sing, don't worry. Why, <laughs> why waste your breath moaning at the crowd? Nothing can be done to stop their shouting. If every tongue was still, the noise would still continue. The rocks and stones themselves would start to sing. Good news needs a voice. Good news demands a voice. The ministry of Jesus rates your voice. There are competing voices out there. There will always be competing voices. In the political arena, sometimes it's hard to figure out on which side of the street to stand, and, and sometimes we just can't say, can we just meet in the middle somewhere? But in the ministry of the gospel, there is but one place to stand. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Glory to God in heaven. Peace to God in the highest heaven. Blessed is the one. Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Good news needs a voice. Good news demands a voice. Good news rates your voice. Do not let anyone rebuke you when you are praising the name of Jesus. Do not let anyone silence you when you are telling the story of Jesus. Do not let anyone tell you your voice is too high or too low or too loud or too soft or that you're too old or too young or too uneducated. When you are witnessing to the good news of Jesus Christ, your voice is the one that's needed. 
our individual voices sound very differently. The voice that tells the good news of Jesus might be heard in the emphatic breath of a deaf preacher. The good news, the voice that tells the good news of Jesus Christ might be heard in the poetic and rhythmic street vernacular of the rapper. The voice that tells the good news of Jesus Christ might be heard in the cacophony and the noise and the jubilation or the tears of a youth group. The voice that tells the good news of Jesus Christ might just sound like your voice. Good news needs a voice. Good news demands a voice. The ministry of Jesus rates your voice. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Amen.